Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. And before we get to our great guest, we want to give a nod to our sponsors over at BetterHelp.com. So remember, you can get one week of convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. And without further ado, Keith O'Neill is with us who won a Super Bowl with the Indianapolis Colts. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Great. So obviously we, we didn't have you on the show because you want a Super Bowl. I, I mean, probably, I, I don't know. It just <laughs> maybe because I, I just happen to think that that's really cool, but we're having you on the show because you're a person who lives with bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, just, just like me, you're right. You're, you live with bipolar disorder. Yeah. I was diagnosed uh, seven years ago at the age of 30. Uh, actually after I retired from playing in the NFL, I was diagnosed. When, when you were playing in the NFL, did you suspect something was going on? Did you have symptoms? Did you have problems? Can you kind of walk us oh, yeah. through that a little bit? Oh, yeah. It was, um, I always say when people ask me this type of question that my time in the NFL was very bittersweet. You know, I was living my childhood dream. I was making a good amount of money playing the game I loved, but I was battling symptoms of undiagnosed bipolar disorder the entire time from anxiety, massive anxiety to insomnia to. I never had a complete manic episode until after I retired, but I did suffer with symptoms of bipolar. And how long had that been going on before you thought to investigate it further? Well, I started having symptoms of bipolar when I was a little kid from anxiety, insomnia, depression, all the Mm -hmm. way through until I, I retired from the NFL. I actually walked away from the game because of my mental health and, you know, it helped that we won a Super Bowl being the last game I ever played in. But then I got diagnosed at the age of 30 after my wife had a miscarriage and I went into a complete manic episode where I was in, you know, lost touch with reality and was in psychosis. And that's when I got my diagnosis. And what was that like for you? Because, you know, listen, let's, let's speak a little real for a moment. Not only are you a man and it's hard for, for men to accept, you know, mental illness, it seems, but you're a football player. So you're, you're the manliest man there is, you know, in our culture. And now you're diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Did, did that play a role for you or was that just irrelevant to you? How did you feel about that? Well, my diagnosis, um, to be real, it, it was terrible. I, I don't even know the words how to explain like what I was going through because to be honest, I was so sick and I was so confused when I got diagnosed and I fell into a dark depression for 18 months that I didn't even tell anybody for, for about almost three years that I had bipolar disorder besides my immediate family and a, a few close friends because I was, I don't know if I was shamed, but I was just confused. I didn't know how to deal with it. And my life had always been so public being an NFL football player and a college football player that it was hard to live with this diagnosis and not tell anybody. So eventually I said I had enough of this and I went public with it and that helped tremendously with my recovery or my wellness, finding wellness. So what kind of reactions did you get from friends and family once you did tell them? The same as we all expect. People didn't know what to say. Mm. People, you know, like people, they were supportive, 
in the way that they were, you know, they would listen, but they just, I was upset with my rea- the reactions. I wasn't getting phone calls. I wasn't getting cards. I wasn't getting anything. It was just, oh, okay, that's why you disappeared for three years, you know. It was a really tough time. It was a really tough transition, uh, you know, going from the NFL to the real world. And then on top of that, getting diagnosed with bipolar and going through what I went through. It was enormously just really tough. When you finally came out, like, publicly, you know, you, you said you lived kind of a public life because of being a college football player and an NFL player. When you came out publicly, what was that like? I mean, that's just something that most of us don't have to deal with. Uh, at first it was very liberating. I was living this secret, you know, and like I said, it, uh, my life had always been public. You know, I did it on a Facebook post, to be honest with you. I just typed in, I have bipolar disorder and I'm going to do everything I can for the rest of my life to raise mental health awareness. At that time, I was starting a foundation for mental health and to fund research. And it was just very liberating. And I could finally just move on and, you know, breathe. And it helped my family out tremendously because they had been living the secret too. So because this was a, a public admission, did the news cover it, the media, any, any, anything happen like that? It wasn't like it was like breaking news on like SportsCenter or NFL Network or anything because I really wasn't a superstar when I played. I was just a grunt that played special teams and had to make it every year. But, you know, like some news outlets covered it and I got in some magazines and Bipolar, BP Hope magazine covered a story on me. And, you know, some people in the mental health world were really excited that I was talking about it and I was excited about that I was talking about it. And my goal is just to to help others who suffer with this illness because I know what it's like and it's tough and the stigma that surrounds it is tough. And that was I always say like the secrecy and the and the stigma that I lived with was almost as bad as the illness itself. So once mm-hmm. I went public things even my health started getting better because I was able to go to therapy and talk to people about therapy. I was able to go to my psychiatrist and not have to, you know, be able to talk to people, oh yeah, I was at my psychiatrist and you know, I don't even care anymore. Like everyone knows. I talk about it. You know, it's Good. just the way it is. So tell me about that foundation that you mentioned. Sure. It's called Fourth and the Fourth and Forever. It's a play on words for football. Um we raise mental health awareness and we fund research. Uh, we've been able to give uh, a, you know numerous gifts back to um, the University at Buffalo Depart- Department of Psychiatry for uh, bipolar research, and the reason is because that's what really helped me out when during my my uh, my struggles with bipolar disorder was the University at Buffalo. Um, I go around the country and I speak uh, to high schools or non for profits about my story and in hopes to helping other people. You said that you go around yeah. the country and talk to high schools. Yeah. I, I work as a speaker as well, and I'm terrified of high schools. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's your message? How do you connect with the kids? Because, you know, young people are the future. They're very important, and, and they're also the most willing to learn. And frankly, they've been the most open about mental health and mental illness topics. But it, it is difficult to connect with them. They, they kind of look at anybody above 25 as old, out of touch, and irrelevant. And I know you're very successful at this. What's your secret to getting through and educating high schoolers you know to be honest it helps when you walk in with a super bowl ring and I'll, you know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> all right that's that's the secret <laughs> now no, you know what you got to do you know, gabe yeah i just as soon as yeah. i win a super bowl so you kind of lead with that it sounds like 
Absolutely. I mean, it catches their attention. I mean, I do two different kinds of settings. I do the classroom setting and I do like the auditorium speech and I can do either one. And when I do the classroom setting, like the health classes, I, I do a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation. I show pictures of me when I was a captain. I show pictures of me with Peyton Manning holding the Super Bowl trophy. And that's what I start with and say, you know, this is who I am. You know, this is, this is bipolar. This is what it looks like, you know, and we, and we can talk about it. It can be anybody, you know, so I grab their attention. And then, you know, I tell them my story and how I, you know, lived with it as a child and through high school and how I had to fight to get through it and not knowing what was going on for 30 years. You know, and I talk about, you know, I had a, a suicide attempt. Um, I talk about that and talk about how happy <laughs> to be alive today. It's a life is a gift. And I just, I just go in and I just, I speak from the heart and it really, it really, it really helps. And not only does it help the students, but it helps the faculty as well, you know, because they need to learn about mental illness as well. I have two questions for you. I'm going to ask you one right after the other. The first question is, what kind of questions do you get from faculty? You know, I really don't get many questions from faculty, to be honest with you. I get them mostly, they let the, the kids do most of the talking. The number one question I get from the, the kids, I open up the questions at the end. I said, hey guys, you can ask me anything you want. You know, it can be about football. It can be about mental health. Like, don't be afraid to raise your hand. You know, like I'm just a normal dude, you know, who played in the NFL, who was successful, that has bipolar disorder. Just raise your hand and one hand will go up first. And it's, the question always is, what was it like to play with Peyton Manning? <laughs> <laughs> it never fails. And I'm just like, you know, it's just everyone wants to know, like, what it's like to play with one of the best football players ever play the game. But then, like, once one hand goes up, another one will go up and say, you know, what was the effect it had on your wife and your kids and your family? I get that a lot because I think a lot of these students and a lot of these kids are living with people, uh, family members who might be suffering as well. And, and I tell them it's, it's hard on them, and, but they're supportive. And it's, it's very important to support, you know, those who have mental illness because at times they need it, at times they don't. So that's probably like the, the two questions I get the most. What's great is, and this is embarrassing, my second question is, what was it like to play with Peyton Manning? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, he was great. He's a stand-up guy, caring. He's as funny as he is in his commercials. Um, he opened his house up to my wife and I when, we were, when I was new with the team. He invited us over for Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, he's just a really good dude. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. I'm not a big NFL person, and I'm more into college football, but it, it mm -hmm. seems like there's a camaraderie amongst teams, players. You know, it's good to be part of a group. Do you feel that being part of that group helped you when you were undiagnosed and in trouble, or, you know, like suffering symptoms, or did it not really play a factor at all? When I was playing in the NFL, I hit everything. Um, I wouldn't tell anybody not even the, really the train or the trainers uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here I did tell people eventually um, my trainers and my coaches but as far as teammates I hid it I hid my anxiety I hid my insomnia I hid 
what was going on with me because I didn't want them to think I was weak or I didn't want to get anyone involved in my stuff. And I wouldn't let my wife talk to any of the players' wives about it. And I had a good group of friends for the Colts that had no idea what was going on until I was diagnosed and until I read, I wrote the book and they read it and they read it and they're like, wow, like we had no idea. I'm like, I know I had it all. Keith, at at what stage in your life was your suicide attempt? And was there something specific that triggered that? Uh, Yes. I was diagnosed at age 30 uh, after a manic episode and I fell into a depression for about 18 months and it was filled with anxiety and, and depression and mixed states, I guess. And, one night I just decided I wanted it all to end and I went upstairs in my bedroom and overdosed on pills and I ended up in a psychiatric hospital for about a week and it was awful. And I ended up after that meeting with Dr. Stephen Duboski at the university at Buffalo and he really helped me get on the right path. And it took a couple of years to finally find the right meds and find a balance in life. But that was uh, five years ago and now I'm doing much better. Good. Glad to hear that. Yeah, we're very glad Thank to hear you. that. Your, your story is, you know, it mirrors a lot of people's stories, of course. It's this idea of, um, you know, there, there's, there's a problem and you're not sure what it is. You find out what it is, but, but help isn't readily available. And, and maybe even it's readily available, but you're not sure how to interpret it, take it, understand it. There's, there's shame, et cetera. And then a crisis point happens for the lucky ones you know, we get hospitalization, we get treatment, and it sort of accelerates our recovery. Uh, you know, that, that's certainly what happened with me, and it, it sounds like what happens with you. I know this is a kind of a tough question, but how could society have worked with you better to get you on the right path without having to reach, you know, that low point, that, that dangerous low point? I know you said that's a very hard question, um, but to me, it was, it's kind of easy. If mental illness and bipolar disorder were accepted in our society, it would have been a lot easier for me. I secluded myself. I isolated myself. I was so, I was ashamed at first. I was, I was sick. My brain was sick, you know, I I just had an illness and I just wanted it to be okay to talk about it. And like I said earlier, once I started talking about it is once I started feeling better. And once I started educating people on it and going public, I started feeling better. So I think if things could be different in our society and mental illness was talked about more things would have helped me a lot better. Well, you're certainly doing your part now to, to help make that a reality with the touring to the schools and the foundation that you have. And last year, you released a book. That's right. I did. It took me four years to write, to be honest with you. It was a, it was a process in itself. I started writing it not knowing it was going to be a book. And then um, maybe four years later, after jumping through a bunch of hoops, and it got published, which was uh, difficult in itself, was just to find a publishing company to believe in my story. And now it's out there. It's titled Under My Helmet. And it's doing pretty well. Good. Glad to hear it. Obviously, we know the book is about your life. We, we Given that the name is Under the Helmet, we got to figure there's a football theme. But aside from all, and, and it's about bipolar disorder, but aside from all of that, what would you say the book is about? Like, like what are the themes outside of mental illness mm-hmm. and football? It's about overcoming adversity. It's about triumph. It's about setbacks. It's about redemption. It's about playing in the NFL with an undiagnosed mental illness. It's about giving up. It's about never giving up, though, as well. Um, it's not just a mental health book. It's, it's a book about 
being a bubble player, which means a football player that's not a superstar, and what it's like to play in the NFL when you're not known, you're not a big star. And I know a lot of people think, oh, you want a Super Bowl, you play in the league, you're a superstar, but I'm, I'm, I wasn't. I was a special teams player. I had to fight every year to make the team that I played for. I was an undrafted free agent out of a small school. So it's about, it's about that. It's about never giving up. It's about resiliency and um, overcoming adversity. I, I love that. I, I think anybody that lives well, uh, you know, with bipolar disorder, you know, in spite of any mental illness, uh, can really relate to the theme of overcoming adversity. Because not only do we have to overcome our illnesses, we have to overcome all of the just piles of garbage that society puts on us. You know, we're sick and discriminated against. We're sick and we feel shame. We're sick and traumatized. It sounds like a lot of those themes really resonate with you. And this is what you give to your audiences, uh, you know, via your book and your speeches. Is that a fair statement? That's very fair. It's, it's a whole lot packed into one. <laughs> Keith, I understand that you had a coach in the NFL who gave you some wisdom, something about beating the demon. Coach uh, Bill Parcells, one of the toughest, most legendary coaches to ever coach the game, uh, Hall of Famer. Actually, a little side story. He coached my father for the New England Patriots, and my father played in the NFL. Wow. And he cut my, fa- he cut my father on August 26, 1980, the same day I was born. So football has been in my blood since the day I was born. But the beat the demon story, I was playing for Coach Parcells, you know, 23 years later for the Dallas Cowboys. And I went, it was after my first season and I was going through insomnia. I hadn't slept in about three nights and I had enough of playing football. I wanted to, I wanted to quit because I didn't know anything else. I didn't know how to reach out for help. I didn't know what to do. So I walked into the, the complex, the Cowboys complex with my playbook. And I walked into his his office and sat down and looked at him and I said, Coach, I quit. And he looked at me and he said, what, are you crazy? I mean, those are the exact words that came out of his mouth. And I looked at him right in the eye and I said, yeah, I haven't been sleeping. I haven't slept in three nights and I don't know what's going on. And he looked at me and he said, Keith, we all have a demon in our head. Every single one of us has a demon. Our job as not only football players, but humans is to beat that demon. So I took out my playbook right there and I took a magic marker off his desk and I wrote across the top of my playbook. I said, I wrote, beat the demon. He looked at me and he said, get the hell out of my office. You're not quitting. And that was it. I went on and played another year with with the Cowboys and then I got picked up by the Colts the next year. So it was pretty intense to say the least. And, And it sounds like beat the demon has kind of become your mantra. I mean, does it help you through tough times, move you forward, move the needle when you're, when you're stressed or depressed? It didn't really get to the root of the problem. Um, I found other ways than just to say beat the demon in my head. You know, there's a lot of other ways that I live now to get through stressful situations, stress in my life, live healthy with bipolar. I've learned that uh, exercise is by far the number one medicine for me. I've learned talk therapy, being vocal, but don't get me wrong. I have beat the demon written across the front of my treadmill. (laughs) So when I'm running, I think about it still. I mean, that was 15 years ago. That's great. That's yeah. Please. I've also had a lot of other coaches in my life. Um, one in particular, Tony Dungy, who has really helped me get through difficult times in my life. 
And I, oh, he did the forward to my book, and I'm so honored that he did it. He's such a great man and someone that, you know, I know is in my corner, and he helped me get through a, a very, very difficult time in my life. And I always tell people when I speak to them, you know, you can always ask people for help. And I wasn't ashamed or I wasn't scared or I wasn't weak. You know, I walked into Coach Dungy's office one day and I wanted to quit football, but I wanted help more. And I asked him, I said, Coach, I'm dealing with anxiety and insomnia. Can you please help me? And he did. He brought in the coaching staff. He brought in the general manager, the doctors, the team trainers. He even brought my wife in who was sitting in the car. And we, we talked about my issues. And they, for the first time in my life, this is when I was playing with the Colts, obviously, I was prescribed medication. And it just goes to show it doesn't matter what level you're at, you know, even if you're playing in the league, that there's people out there that are willing to help you. And I had guys like Bill Parcells and Tony Dungy and Bill Polian who were in my corner that were willing to help people who struggle with mental health issues. And I think it illustrates that we can't do it alone. Sometimes beating the demon requires a team. And as somebody who played professional team sports, uh, you know, I'm sure that resonates a lot with you. Yeah, absolutely. Keith, earlier in the show, you mentioned that your wife had a miscarriage. Did you ever start a family or are you a father? Yes, I'm a proud father of two boys. Connor's five and Tanner is two. They run around, they keep me busy when I'm not working on my foundation or raising mental health awareness. I am a, a stay-at-home father. My wife works part-time. She's a registered nurse. So, we, uh, you know, we're pretty busy. I, I think that's incredible. One of the things that we do here, you know, out in society is that, you know, people with bipolar disorder shouldn't have children or people with mental illness shouldn't have children. And then, of course, you know, bipolar disorder is passed genetically. So, you know, a, a, a parent with bipolar disorder is more likely to have a child with bipolar disorder. How do you feel about all of that? Just the way that society sort of feels about people in our position, you know, being parents. I think it's ridiculous, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think people, first of all, I think people who suffer, or I don't even want to say suffer, people who live with bipolar disorder are the most caring, passionate people there are. I mean, ever since I, I've been diagnosed, I've met many people now who have bipolar and they're caring, they're hard workers, they're compassionate, you know, and they're definitely equipped to be parents. You know, I, my wife and I, I'm a great parent. I'll say it. You know, I, I know how to raise, I'll, I'll know how to raise my boys. I'm no doubt about it. Keith, that's wonderful. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I was one of the people that sort of bought into that stereotype that people living with bipolar disorder shouldn't have kids. And it's one of my I mean, it's, it's, it's probably my biggest regret that I believed what society was telling me rather than reflecting inward on my own abilities. You know, I, I'm glad that you didn't suffer the same consequences because I'm sure your children are great and I'm, I'm sure you're a great father. I, I'm glad that bipolar disorder didn't take that away from you. Well, thanks. And like, it just makes me think like, you know, people who say that people who have bipolar disorder shouldn't be parents or people with mental illness shouldn't have parents it kind of gets me mad and it makes me want to say like, what's wrong with having bipolar disorder? <laughs> you know, like uh, very successful people have bipolar disorder. Yeah. We see things differently sometimes and we've been through a lot more than most people. I think it makes us stronger. It makes us stronger people. It makes us, you know, be able to know how to raise children and 
empathize with them and teach them empathy and teach them how to treat people because we've seen pain and we know what it's like. That's how I feel. That's an excellent point, Keith. So what do you think Thank the you. future's got in store for you? What's, what's next on your agenda? I'm going to read another book. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. There's no way that's ever going to happen again. But no, I, um, I'm very, you know, 2018 is going to be a great year for my foundation. It's already started off better than the last three years. I have speaking engagements all over the country. I'm, I'm excited. I'm speaking at schools like Stanford and the University of Oklahoma. Um, I want to raise money for research. And, you know, I want to grow in love with my, my wife and my kids and my family. And I have a great group of friends who help me and are there to support me and my foundation. So I just, I'm excited about the future. I've learned from the past and I'm looking ahead. Fantastic. So tell us how our listeners can find you. Uh, you have a website. I'm sure your book's on Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. My my book's on Amazon under my helmet. I have a website, a uh, personal website. It's uh, keithoneal.com. And from there, you can uh, find my uh, my foundation. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. I'm new to Twitter. I'm finding that it's, I'm finding out it's a game and I'm starting to get addicted <laughs> to it already. <laughs> it's an adult game yes social media will suck you in and spit you out and you'll enjoy every moment of it right up until you don't i'm very impulsive i had a twitter account and i I one day i was like i'm sick of twitter and i deleted it and then like six months later here i am starting from scratch Uh, (laughs) you know like oh you get those twitter followers up again here we go what what's your what's your twitter handle keith o'neill 41 Keith O'Neill, 41. And is 41 the, the number when you played? Yeah, I was number 41 in college. So, Number 41 in college. Excellent. What numbers were you when you played in the NFL? I was number 54 for the Cowboys and 53 for the Colts and 54 for the Giants. This is, this is now the real last question because I've always been curious about it. How do you get a number in the NFL? Do you get to select it yourself? Is it assigned? Um, that's a great question. Um, if you're a linebacker, you have to be like a linebacker or someone that plays on defense in a certain position. You have to be in the, in the 50s or the 90s. There's no question about it. It's a rule the NFL has. Most linebackers are in the 50s. And when I showed up for the Cowboys, they just gave me a number. They're like, here's your number, your number 54. And then when I made the team, they're like, do you want to keep your number? And I always thought 54 was a cool number. So I was like, yeah, I'll keep it. But if like someone has the number already, you can't really take it from them but you can buy it from them <laughs> if you want to. Yeah. It's crazy. People will buy numbers wow. off people. They, dude, I'll buy your number for like 20 grand. I mean, it gets, wow. it gets up there. Yeah. So it's just really there to answer your question. They're really just giving out and you just take what you get. Just take what you get. I love it. All right. Well, thank you, Keith, for being on the show. Uh, the time just flies by. We really appreciate you being here. And hopefully someday soon I can see your Super Bowl ring because much like the kids that you speak to, having a Super Bowl ring is definitely very cool. I'm not going to lie, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks thank for being time. here, I Keith. Really it was fun. It. If, there's anything you, if there's anything you need, let me know. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you all next week here on the Psych Central Show podcast. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. 
previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.